0: I was just actually asking the Lord, like, what are you doing in worship? Because this is such a sweet time. And there's a beautiful verse, Romans 5, 5, it says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And I was just like, we were feeling that the love of God is just being poured into our hearts as we were worshiping. And I just felt God saying he's restoring hope and he's breaking off disappointment. I really feel like that's something that the Holy Spirit's just doing. And even, even as I preach and as, as you just sit here, I just feel like God is going to restore hope in our hearts again. Um, but it's quite a week to say something like that, and I just, I just felt like I couldn't start my message after a week like we've had in our city without us just taking a moment to pray for our city. So I'm just going to invite you guys to stand. Um, and we're just going to pray for our city because our vision, our mission statement for our church is stepping into the story of God and the ways of Jesus for the sake of Cape Town. And unless you've been living under a rock, you would, have, you would know that there's been massive, massive carnage in our city with these taxi strikes. And um, for a lot of us in this room where we live, it doesn't maybe affect us, but... Um, This is something that's just a legacy of our city that is actually just from the pit of hell. The demonic separation of people based on their skin color has led to so many people just continuing to live in the legacy of suffering and and separation. And so, Lord, as we stand here as a community in the city, Lord, saying we want to step into your story for our city, Lord, we just humble ourselves, Lord, you said if we humble ourselves and pray, Lord, you will heal our land, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would do a healing work in our city. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us, Lord, for putting up walls in our hearts, Lord, because this it's just too hard, or it's just too constant, or it just feels like it's too much, or it's just, we just want to, Repent of that, Lord. We ask for your forgiveness, Lord, where we have just separated ourselves from the places of pain. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just give us your compassion, Father. We pray for our city, Lord. May we be peacemakers, Lord. We pray for those who've been so affected, Lord, by what's happened, Lord. Open our eyes, open our ears, Lord. Let us open our lives, Lord, to the broken in our city. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Jenna reminded me of that photo that's up there that I took on Sunday, the twenty-third of July. That it was actually you can you might not be able to see it, but it's actually a double rainbow over the city. And I was just like, "Wow, <laughs> there's promises over our city, and God's calling us as individuals and and as a community of people who say we carry the the heart of God and the ways of Jesus to step into those places of pain." And to bring the promise of his presence. Amen? Amen. As Julie said, it's interactive. So, let's go. Um, I was looking up the word signal. I mean, it's like so, so obvious, You actually, like if someone had to ask you to explain what a signal mean. Something that shows that something else exists or is likely to happen. It's quite a cool definition. And I was just thinking of us as a church. We can be those that show that something else exists or something else is likely to happen. May that be a prophetic declaration over us as a church. That there's something else that exists in the midst of crisis, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of the realities that we face. We are prophetic declaration to the city. He's calling us to be hope carriers That we carry something else in our heart, with the anticipation that something is likely to happen. Amen. That's for free. It's not even in my notes. So, guys, if you haven't been here for the last seventy-five weeks, (laughs) we've been going through the story of Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, and we're coming to into land. And just praise the Lord. What an amazing, amazing series. And um, I've got the fortunate job of preaching on two chapters. So we'll be done by 11.30. I'm joking. (laughs) Okay, Genesis 22 verse 20 to the end of 23. I'm going to read it. I know it's small, but don't worry. I'm going to zoom in on that. And I might jump over a few names because of time. But now, after these things, you can leave it as it is. It was told to Abraham Behold, Milcah, which was his sister in law, has also, bo- also borne children to your brother Nahor. And lists all the children. Um, I think these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Quite a thing, eh? You spend your whole life, we spend how many months waiting for them to have one child, a whole story, and then boom. His brother has eight kids. What it must be like being related to Terran and Julie. (laughs) Um, Okay, Sarah's death and burial. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And she died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abram rose up from before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abram, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose, and he bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me for Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Next slide. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and he answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the city of the gates. No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I'll give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I might bury my dead there. Ephron answered, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land with 400 shekels of silvers, what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and weighed out the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field on Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees, bah, 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 was given to Abraham as possession in the presence of the Hittites. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Cool story. Awesome. Aren't you guys full of faith? We are going to change Cape Town. We are in the southern tip of Africa in 2023, and we are reading about someone burying his wife 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. What? What? are we doing <laughs> 4,000 even 4,000 so I'm just going to zoom in on a few things here it's it's um you might not be able to see that um but from the date that Abraham was called to when he died was 100 years from the day that he was called and God gave him a promise it was 25 years until his son Isaac was born the son of promise so that whole story we've been hearing, like, from chapter 12, I think, to 20 or 21, was 25 years, and then you've got another 75 years um, before Abraham dies, and it's at the bottom there, it says, death of Sarah, she was 127, and Abraham was 137, so... Genesis 23 1 says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And I was just thinking, she had, in the story, she had 25 years that were under like the scrutiny of Scripture. And then we don't really hear anything else for the next 37 years of her life. Um, for Abraham, it was longer. He lived another 38 years after Sarah died. And um, I was just thinking... Isn't it amazing like God zooms in on this on these two people, on this promise, on the destiny that He's got over their lives? And it seems like forever, and in the scheme of it, it's like a short snapshot in their life in which God is doing something significant. And I just felt to say that, you know, for many of us, we just need to come back to the place where we know that God holds the time in his hands in our lives sometimes it's so easy to feel like i don't know maybe maybe i'm just having a group therapy session here because i turned 40 this year and i'm like midlife crisis and i'm like "What, what am i doing with my life what am i what have i done with my life where am i going but you know god can do something in a in a period in a passage of our life that can set us up for the rest of our lives so wherever you are in the space of your life you know, it's, it's so easy just to think, like, you know, I've got, like, I don't know, 70, 60, 80 years. Like, am I missing it? No. When we give our, when we give our hearts to the Lord, when we surrender our, our time before God, He can do something with the time of our lives that way exceeds our ability to control it in human, in human terms, if that makes sense. But I really want to zoom in on this next slide, um, Genesis 23-2, it says, Sarah died and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And that phrase, that he went in to mourn for her, just struck me. That here is a woman he's lived probably most of his life with. He's carried the promises of God. He's been aware of like the victories that they've seen, the challenges, and she dies. And he goes in to face her death. When others rush out, we rush in. So that's something I read this week. And I don't know if you guys remember what Pete Hughes was saying. God always meets us in the place of pain. And God wants us to be people who rush in to the places of pain in other people's lives. And for many of us, we face death, we face loss, we face disappointment. But i was so encouraged that Abraham, he actually went in. There his dead wife lay and he faced head on probably the biggest loss, the biggest pain that he'd ever felt in his life, the loss of his wife. And then it says, he mourned her. I looked up up the, the meaning of that word mourn. It means to tear the hair and beat the breasts, to lament, to express passionate grief, to express regret or disappointment about something. So like he wrestled, he wrestled with this loss. He mourned. And you know what's so interesting about Abraham? Is that he had a legacy in his own life of a father who never mourned the death of his son. You know, when it it talks about the call of Abraham, you can read it in Genesis 12, he goes up with his father, and it says his father had three sons, and the one son, Haran, died. And they're moving about, and they eventually come to a place called Haran. And it says his father settled there, and he never moved from there. And it's so symbolic of the fact that he couldn't move on past the death of his son And he settled in a place of disappointment, of loss, and of grief. But here is Abraham as a man of faith that is not allowing the legacy of his family to determine the legacy of his future. And he's actually going in and he's mourning the loss in his life. And for many of us, the calling of a life of faith is to recognize the things that are in our own family line, the things that we might be carrying from other people. And when we have the same thing happen in our life, we have the grace of God on our lives to face those things and to say, if I'm going to live a life of legacy, which is what Abraham did, I'm not going to pass those things on to my children. Making sense? It's really important for us to mourn the losses in our lives this is what Isaiah 61.3 says, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And you can't get the oil of joy until you've actually been through the period of mourning. And I don't know about you guys, but since COVID, I just feel like some of us, we've just been through loss after loss. In fact, like the, the world we're living in is like we just keep reeling from losses and disappointments. And God says to us, I'm the God who comforts you in the, in the midst of your losses. But I'm inviting you to be a people who know how to mourn and who know how to come to me and carry your disappointments with me. And then it says that he wept. So he didn't only mourn, but he also wept. He cried He wailed. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And I don't know if you remember, but Pete Hughes gave us a word that we would, as a church, going through, some of us were in a season of weeping because the joy is on the way. And for some of us, I just felt like God wants to give us the gift of tears. Because sometimes you just have to Mourn over those things and face them because he's got more for you. There's an amazing verse in Psalm 84, verse 6. I remember I came across this verse when a friend of ours died one night on a mountain, 2015. And it says, those who pass through the valley of Baca make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. Or as the Passion says, even when their paths wind through the dark valley of tears, they dig deep to find a pleasant pool where others f- find only pain. He gives them a brook of blessing filled from the rain of an outpouring. And for some of us, we just need to sow in some tears because we got a lot of joy that we're reaping. And for some of you, you've been through a season where you've been sowing in tears and there's joy that's coming. And then in verse 3, it says, and Abraham rose up from before his dead. Just picture this, like he's been weeping. We don't know how long. The Bible speaks in many places of like lengths of mourning, but here it, it doesn't say. And it says, he rose up from before his dead. He didn't rise up having buried her, but he rose up from before her. When we've mourned the losses and wept through the night seasons of pain in our lives, we awake to the joy that comes in the morning. And I just feel like, for some of us, the enemy is trying to keep us in a place of like constant grief and constant mourning, or just like not moving on from the losses in our lives, because he he knows what happens when we rise up. He knows what happens when we rise up. But when the comforter comes in, he comforts us so that we can comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. That's what the Bible says. And I remember um, a, few, a few years ago just going through some stuff and like really just harboring some disappointment in my own life just in terms of the prophetic and some of the promises of God. And I remember listening to a message I can't even remember what the message was about, but this guy shared a verse I'd never heard before, and it like struck me straight between the eyes. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. It's talking about the story of Samuel and Saul. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I will have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of you i chosen one of his sons to be king. And I felt like God said to me, how long will you continue to mourn? Rise up, fill your horn with oil and go. And it was just like this moment of God saying like the season of mourning is over. The season of being disappointed. The season of like ruminating on those things is over. Rise up, get up. Fill your horn with oil. Take the promises that I've spoken over your life. Hold them in your hand and go. Because I'm sending you to people and I need you to be a person that is able to mourn and get up and walk on. And it like just did something in my life. And I, and I haven't thought about that verse since this morning. And I felt like for some of you, God is just saying like, rise up. Fill your horn with oil. You know what God's placed within your hand. And go, I'm sending you to people. Because there's a destiny over your life that is bigger than just what you can see right now. God has placed you in places that need light. So take your lamp and go. God has placed you around people that need what is inside of you to come out. Somebody say amen. Amen. And then he says in verse 4, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you, and it struck me because here's Abraham. He's got promises over years and years and years and years that God is going to give him land, that God is going to use him to bless the whole earth. And here he is. His wife has died, and he's basically saying, coming to these guys, and he's saying, "I'm a, I'm a sojourner. I'm a visitor. I'm a tenant." I've got the destiny and the promises over me of being someone who's gonna leave a legacy and in in those times, land was equivalent to blessing and legacy. Like that's why they fought so many wars because the land that you left your next generation was the sign of your legacy and your greatness in that culture. Here's a man that God has spoken greatness over him and he doesn't even own a single plot of land and he comes to them and says, I'm a tenant, I've got nothing. I'm a foreigner among you, but I want to buy some of your land. And I found this so profound because while he had not yet entered into the fullness of the promise of God over his life, he lived with a man who had the promise of owning and possessing land. He lived with the mind, not of a tenant, but a landlord. He didn't live with a victimhood mentality And then we go into this whole passage where it's like Abraham and the guys, and they keep bartering about, like, let me buy your land. Let me, let me, like, no, we'll give it to you. No, I'll buy it. No, you can have it. No, I'll buy it. And um, it's, I I read up quite a bit about it because it's quite random. I'm like, what is this whole thing? And it's basically the whole customs that they used to have in in that culture of, like, you've got to be super polite. And then, you know, so they went through a, a whole process. But the whole, the whole idea here is that Abraham is fueled, and he's got the vision in his mind that God has called him as a man to possess the land. Genesis 15:7: "I am the Lord, the, your God, who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it." Genesis seventeen eight: the whole land of Canaan where you now reside, I will give it as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. God didn't just give the land to Abraham, he gave it to him to possess it. And it's interesting how God gives us things, but he also says, I'm giving it to you to possess it. It's like God gives us promises, but then he wants us as people to step into those promises and take ownership of them and live into them. Some of us are living in the very land of promises of God and haven't realized that his promises weren't only to bring us into something, but were designed for us to take possession of the very thing he had promised So he says here in verse, in verse nine, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for burying place. You can go to the next slide. And then he says, they go in this whole bar, of so 400 shekels of silver. Abraham weighed out the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver. It's like a random amount. Some people say it was a lot, some people say it wasn't. But there's an amazing significance to this 400 because early in Genesis I think it's Genesis 15 Abraham has an encounter with God in his dream and he says I'm going to give you this land but then the your people are going to come under oppression and they're going to be under oppression for 400 years and then they're going to come back to possess the land so when 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 Ephron names this this price of 400 he doesn't haggle he doesn't barter he knows in the back of his mind there's a 400 year window when my period when my people are going to be out of this land but they're going to come back in this so I'm willing to pay a price for every year that they're going to be out knowing that I'll own a piece of land that God has given me so that when my people come back in I've already taken land which they're going to possess in future I don't know if that's like getting you, it got, it got to me. Because in our culture, we are so independent and we're so individualistic that our default is to view our lives through the lenses of our individual hopes, dreams, callings, desires. Or is it just me? Just me, it's just me today. On my own up here. <laughs> but the perspective of God is always bigger than than the nucleus and the extent that we live our lives in. So what was happening? Abraham was seeing ahead of him that 400 years time, God is going to be good on his promise. And what I'm not living in now, someone else in a future generation is going to live in. So I'm going to pay a price now so that they can enter into something that didn't cost them something, but it cost me something. It's about living from a place of legacy. See, legacy pays a price for someone else to walk in something that cost you something. Legacy pays a price so that someone else can live in the victory that you fought to win. And God is calling us a signal to be people where we live as faith so that we don't just take promises and say, God's spoken this over my life so I can have an amazing life, but so that I can enter into something that other people can enter into freely because I've paid the price to take possession of it. Is that helping you guys? I've paid a price. But it's not just paying a price that he's doing. He's also investing. He's seeing like, I can keep this money to myself or I can invest this money into the very place where the promise of God has been spoken. And I might not see the fulfillment of the promise in my own life, but I trust God that he's good and he has the power to perform it. And if I join my will and I invest in what God's gonna do, it's gonna return a harvest that's gonna way outweigh my life and it's gonna impact generations. And God is calling us as people to live lives of faith where we say, God's spoken something of my life. I'm going to pay a price. I'm going to give something of my life, lay something of my life down so that other people can live that my ceiling becomes their platform, that my end point becomes their starting point. I hope I'm not getting into preachable now, but... He has this one moment of negotiation with this guy, and it can go, you know, anywhere. And the guy keeps saying, "Like I'll give it to you for free," and he recognizes, "No." Negotiation for a moment has implication for generations. Where God calls us into places where He says, "If you, my people, act in faith, you can have an impact for generations." And I guess for me that's why like this whole thing that's happened in our city this week is like just crushed my heart so much because the implication of a few actions by previous generations means that our city lives in a legacy of separation. And we're living in a situation where we have to break the bondage that is over so many people in our city and we have to turn that cycle, and create a new legacy. And isn't it interesting that Isaac was the answer to his parents' barrenness? And you look at his whole life, wherever he goes into a barren place, he goes, he digs the wells. Wherever he goes, it says he was a man of abundance. You can read the story of Isaac. There's a few occasions where they had to kick him out because he had got too prosperous and too abundant, and the kings asked him to leave because people were getting jealous. Because he was the answer to barrenness wherever he went. And that was a legacy where he'd lived in the fullness of what he was following on from Abraham and Sarah who'd stepped into faith. this isn't just about human efforts and being like, cool, I'm gonna like, like pay a price and I'm gonna be that guy and I'm gonna invest. No, this is a matter of faith in the face of the impossible. This is Abraham who God did the impossible, gave him Isaac, and now he's sitting here, he's like, my wife's just died. I'm in a foreign land, but I'm gonna take possession of something, even if it costs me something. And we can flip over to chapter um, 25 very quickly. So Abraham took another wife. His name was Keturah. They had a whole bunch of kids. Amazing, eh? Spends his whole life waiting to have one kid. His wife dies. He marries a lady whose name means fragrance. And they have a whole bunch of kids. And then it says, But Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, verse 5. These were the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. He breathed his last. He died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And so the field that he'd bought 38 years earlier, he gets buried in. And it's amazing, it says, he gave all he had to Isaac. And God is looking for us as people to be people who have that same mindset of legacy as Abraham. It's like, not only about going after the promises, but who are you giving your life to? The fruits of Jesus' ministry wasn't his miracles and the crowds. It was 12 people. Of those 12, it was a handful that he, he drew close. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. And, you know, we've got a value in this church that we are intergenerational, that we are living for the next generation. And there's something so powerful being people who can lay our own lives down For others to walk in the freedom that maybe we didn't get to enjoy. And so, as God, like, just continues to encourage us to be people of faith, let us have a vision for giving our lives away to other people. Who are you pouring your life into? And you know, the amazing thing is Abraham Abraham went and he spent all this money to buy a tomb. And some of us may think, oh, you're talking about legacy, money, resources. I've got nothing, I've got nothing to give. I don't even know, I'm not even aware of the promises of God over my life. I'm looking back at shattered dreams and shattered promises and like, what does it even mean? But you know what, if you fast forward, there was a man that we all follow, and he was buried in a tomb that had to be donated to him because he owned nothing. When he died crucified on a cross, the last thing that he owned was being gambled away in front of him. Even his very own friends deserted him in his greatest hour of need and pain. Yet the legacy of Jesus and his life and what he poured and gave his life for means that we're all here in this room living of the freedom of his very life laid down. So if you don't, you feel like you've got nothing, you've got nothing to give, can look to Jesus and realize that when we give our lives to him, we receive all that he paid for, all that he bought. He's the resurrection and the life. Everything that looks dead, when it comes to him, it comes alive. I love it and I I know I must end but he goes into Jesus he goes into the grave and he wins his greatest victory in the place of the grave the resurrection and the life when the enemy thinks he's won Jesus is there swallowing death in himself and taking the keys And I want to end with this description of the life of Abraham. Romans 4, verse 18 to 21. It says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Why don't you guys stand against all hope. And the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You can't live in faith if you're not living for the things that you are hoping for. So Lord, we just pray that you would fill our hearts this morning with such hope. our hearts with such hope I'll end with a very short story I was um, having a really tough week this week in a project that we're working on in Bishop's Court it's a land restitution project it's a family of well there's a community of 86 people who are returning to live on the land that they were removed off in the 50's and 60's and 70's And it's like we're facing legal challenges and like a lot of opposition. And I got to like the end of myself on Friday and I just drove down. I was just like driving around the sites and I was like saying like, Lord, how much longer for these people? How much longer for these people to take possession of their land again? And As I drove, I... um, I looked over the site and I saw like hundreds, probably thousands of these um, erim lilies, and uh, it's just that you can see it on screen. And uh, I was like, "Wow, the sign of life." And um, I looked up the meaning of or the significance of an arum lily, and it says that they're used in Easter bouquets because. Their significance is the resurrection from the dead. And I just felt the Lord say like, you know, in the very place of your weakness, in the very place where everything looks dead and buried, I'm the one who steps in. I am the resurrection and the life. I am all your promises fulfilled. So Lord, we where we look at our lives, I look at our city, look at those things that face us and like Abraham, we're not yet in the fullness of the promise, Lord. We thank you that you restore hope afresh. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you deposit afresh outpouring of hope yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. for some of you you need to hear the words arise and go take up your horn I'm sending you I'm sending you you know we've been on a journey as a church in marveling at the faithfulness of God in this series and I feel like what he's doing is he's saying you've seen my faithfulness now I'm stirring your faith to step into what we haven't yet seen so Lord we thank you that you are the God of all hope